Hello, and welcome to Unscripted, Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence, a podcast featuring employees and subject matter experts from domestic and sexual violence services and partner organizations discussing all aspects of interpersonal violence, plus solutions and resources for support for residents of Fairfax County. I'm your host, Kendra Lee. On this edition of Unscripted, I'm talking with Jennifer Perkins, DAPT counselor with Fairfax County's Domestic and Sexual Violence Services, also known as DSVS, Abby Picard, Human Trafficking and Sexual Violence Coordinator, also with DSVS, and Monica Hunasakati, Survivor Community Specialist with the Virginia Anti-Violence Project. Today we're discussing violence in LGBTQ plus relationships. Jen, Abby, and Monica, thanks for being here on Unscripted Conversations about Sexual and Domestic Violence. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Happy to be here. Members of the LGBT community often face more severe violence. In addition, violence in their intimate partner relationships can present in a different way than violence in heterosexual relationships. So let's start with the first part. Why is the violence that people in LGBT plus communities face so severe? What's driving this? I can go ahead and get started on that question. I mean, I think the biggest thing to note is that um, that's the violence that's being reported, right? So if you have a community that is underreporting, um, you also have a community who maybe is experiencing violence that's not um, rising to the level of needing to call 911 or get emergency services involved. So potentially some of that is coming from that statistic rather than being that people are experiencing greater violence but people are less likely to reach out until that violence is severe to the point that they maybe need medical care or need to get um, some form of system involved to protect them from that support. So some of it, I think, has to do with just who's reporting and when they're reporting. Um, and I also think something that's important to keep in mind is that LGBTQ people face um, violence from many different aspects of life. So not just from intimate partners, um, but also folks who experience violence from their community, um, not necessarily the LGBTQ community itself, um, but violence related to their identity, violence related to their other experiences. LGBTQ people are more likely to experience that generally um, than people who are not a part of the community. And so it's not necessarily that there's something about the relationship that is keeping folks um, from getting access to support. It's not necessarily that there's something about the relationship that's inherently more violent. Um, but there is something inherent to our society that makes it harder for folks to reach out until things have really reached a crisis point. And piggybacking off of that, um, I was going to say, yes, I agree with everything Abby was saying, um, as well as uh, institutional barriers are a big thing that um, at least my nonprofit sees our clients go through, like a lot of barriers that way, um, not just with accessibility, but also with a lot of discrimination and bigotry that comes from reporting violence that a lot of our clients have experienced. So. When our clients who are at their most vulnerable states are reaching out for assistance, um, if they decide to reach out to law enforcement, for example, a lot of times they face a lot of barriers just from interacting with someone who is in an agency that's supposed to help. So I did just want to like put that out there too. I'll, I'll add that even when folks do reach out for treatment, pick up any domestic violence treatment manual. It is all geared towards heteronormative relationships. Um, I've yet to come across domestic violent treatment that is geared towards LGBTQ relationships. We know the earlier intervention um, or treatments provided the, um, you know, in terms of 
that that is something that can prevent from violence becoming more severe and intervening early on. And a lot of interventions are geared towards heteronormative relationships. So there isn't a lot of treatment models out there, at least that I'm aware of, that are really, you know, safe and geared and researched and evidence-based for LGBTQ folks and relationships. So that is another barrier that they face as well. So what I'm hearing in part is that service programs inadvertently maybe fail to accommodate non-cisgender clients. What do we need to do to how can we make this better? What do we need to do to fix this? Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. I think that one of the things that service providers often do, um, either inadvertently or, you know, sometimes it just depends on the types of clients that those service providers are willing to serve. Um, because so much of the research, so much of what we, um, designate as evidence-based practice, so much of what exists came from a model uh, that was developed in the eighties, the Duluth model, which was for women in relationships with men. Um, it's sort of a self-perpetuating cycle, right? And so when we're working off of models, of course, we want to be research-based, research-focused. But because those things don't exist, uh, a lot of organizations don't think how they can implement their practices in a way that's going to be more holistic. So it can start with things like making all of your forms have opportunities for folks to share their pronouns. It can be making sure that you have policies in place that are not focus specifically on women as victims or men as uh, people who are using harm and using violence in their relationships. Um, Making really intentional choices about the language that you use is really just a starting place. Um, And then also making sure that you have welcoming spaces. So if you are saying, you know, here, here, we're going to have resources that are available for victims as a broad category, but then all of your groups are specifically for women. That's not necessarily something that is uh, intentional or specific, but that is putting out something to the community about who you're willing to serve. So even if you have staff who are well-trained and really uh, culturally feeling like they have the capacity to serve LGBTQ clients, it's really important to make services both accessible and then make it clear to the community that those services are welcoming and affirming for LGBTQ folks as well. And if I could add... um Again, I'm piggybacking off of you, Abby. I love everything that you just said. Yes, definitely agree with those. Um, I'd also like to say, like, in terms of like the workplace that you're building should be, gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm not very good at articulating sometimes, <laughs> but it's just like, um, creating an environment in a workplace that acknowledges that like even providers and social workers and advocates, we come with a lot of like, how do I phrase it? Like, We've learned really bad behavior or we've, you know, like we have to uncondition ourselves and we have to be open to criticisms and critiques, especially when we, we are the ones that a lot of, um, marginalized communities reach out to. I don't know if I'm like explaining myself very well. Um, but like creating that environment and being, being open enough to understand that like we're going to make mistakes, even though we want to help people. So we have to be able to like take that criticism. What's different about the way violence in an LGBTQ plus relationship presents than in a heterosexual relationship? What could be different? Well, I, you know, in any relationship, right, um, people can react from anger um, and harm another person in a harmful way, right? Um, LGBTQ folks deal with some extra layers that 
other heteronormative folks um, or folks in heteronormative relationships may not have to deal with, right? They don't ever have to face the fear of being outed. Um, they don't have to um, face, uh, you know, uh, the fear of being outed, the threat of that. It's not always safe for people to be out. So there's certain dynamics that could come up in those relationships, such as um, outing somebody that you wouldn't have in a heteronormative relationship. Um, there's other forms of emotional, especially emotional, psychological abuse that might be present that you might not see in a heteronormative relationship. Physical violence is physical violence, but the emotional psychological piece can be very different because of the challenges and barriers that LGBTQ folks face. Another example is use of incorrect pronouns, um, you know, saying that um, attacking somebody's gender identity, um, threatening to misuse it or to share something that is not necessarily safe for that person to have known in certain um, parts of their life. So that's something that somebody who's in a heteronormative relationship would never have to face. They have to face other um, potential for threats and harm. But this one is, there's just this added layer. And this is something that is a little bit different in those relationships. So, so things like that can come up. Um, I'd also say that I I found that in a lot of queer relationships, there's a lot of internalized um, self-hatred. That definitely pops up, um, especially like if we keep intersectionality in mind, there's folks that like there are queer and trans folks that come from multicultural backgrounds where it's either, you know, really looked down upon or the stigma is really, 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 really harsh. So having to navigate the, that kind of terrain with clients and like f with folks who are in queer relationships dealing with like, how do you deal with a partner that loves you, but also hates um, certain parts of themselves. And I'll just add, um, you know, I'm on our prevention, education, and coordination team. Um, and one of the things that we do when we look at primary prevention, which is trying to prevent violence from happening in the first place, um, we talk a lot about gender and about how we bring gender roles into our relationships um, and the way that we're taught from a really young age, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man, what are seen as feminine traits, what are seen as masculine traits, um, and it's not to say that masculinity is associated with violence in terms of, you know, men are using violence because they are men. Um, but oftentimes when we teach children from a very young age, the way to express emotions looking different from one gender versus another gender, it means that we bring that to our relationships. So, for example, when we tell young boys that they are not supposed to cry, they're not supposed to um, have emotions, then anger is sometimes the only emotion that we allow from men. Similarly, when we tell girls they're not allowed to have anger, they're not allowed to express those types of emotions, um, those might be more inward, whereas more outward emotions might be sadness, might be feelings of overwhelm, might be crying openly, right? So when we have those built into our wiring, those don't just disappear when someone identifies as queer, right? Those are still built into the way that we see things. And so for men in relationships with other men, for women in relationships with other women, and then for non-binary people who don't have set norms that we're teaching from birth of like, this is what it means to be non-binary, um, those roles are still going to impact the way that we come to relationships. And so, um, for example, for women in relationships with other women, if anger is not something that is typically expressed, um, 
in a very outward way that we typically allow from young boys, teens, and then men. Um, it might be expressed in ways that are more levels of manipulation. It might be more expressed in ways that are um, sort of under the radar and are less identifiable from a legal perspective as violence. And so um, something that often happens with um, relationships with uh, between women is that there are situations where abuse is actually misidentified as one person being abusive um, when they're actually the person experiencing abuse um, just because of expectations and norms around their gender presentation. So, for example, if they are presenting as more masculine, if they're physically larger, um, they might be assumed to be more likely to um, be perpetrating violence of some sort. But we know that that actually isn't how things work, right? We know that abuse can happen in any relationship dynamic between people of any genders. Um, but that really impacts ability to go and seek support. If you feel like you're not going to be believed for being someone who's experiencing violence generally, but then you have extra layers of, well, I won't be believed because of my identity, because of the way I present my gender, because of the type of relationship that I'm in, um, you get these additional levels of it takes longer for folks to access the support that they need. Um, because there's that concern of, am I going to be believed? Are people going to understand? But also, am I going to be accused? Am I going to be um, assumed to be the one who's perpetrating violence? Um, so that's another thing that, that really runs through folks' brains um, is, you know, we don't talk about violence uh, in relationships generally. We especially don't talk about what violence looks like um, in that broader context. Abby, you mentioned gender norms and how we're raised, and I, I want to circle back to that just for a moment. So when I was a kid, which was in the 70s, um, girls, yeah, we, we were allowed to cry. Boys weren't. Boys weren't allowed to wear pink or dresses or nail polish. But I would think things are a little better 40 years later. Are we not any better? So I don't think it's that we're not any better. <laughs> I think that we're doing better than we used to. I think there are a lot of opportunities now to be intentional about, you know, being supportive of girls um, and seeing the strength in girls, allowing boys to have those emotions. And then just we know for a fact that more people are identifying as trans and non-binary than ever before, at least publicly. So, you know, we are moving forward. And these things are so embedded in our culture that it can be hard to unlearn. Um, they're embedded culturally. When I say culture, I mean broadly, but also in individuals' cultures, right? What was the norm growing up of what dad did versus mom did? Or was I exposed to LGBTQ people as a child? You know, did I have people in my life who I could see as role models for me? Um, and so it's not about whether something is fixed or not better or if it's gone away. It's also about the fact that we live in multi-generational society, right? So even though there are more opportunities now for breaking of those gender roles, it doesn't mean that they've disappeared. Um, and gender roles aren't inherently bad. There are a lot of ways in which, you know, they can support um, having, you know, a family that have equitable distribution of labor. It's not that mom has to do everything or dad can't do anything or whatever, you know, kind of thing. But it is saying that, you know, the gender that we are raised in and the roles that we are raised in don't have to be the way that we come to our relationships. And so when we work with young people, we talk a lot about it's not that you are a certain gender or that your gender is supposed to do something. Um, it's that these ideas about what is seen as normal for boys, normal for men, normal for girls, normal for women are really exclusive of our experience as individuals, regardless of um all of the different pieces of how we identify gender. 
Um, that's not actually what gender is. Gender is something that's inside of us um, and that is internal to us. And it can be whatever we want it to be and mean whatever we want it to mean. I will speak now as a mom of a boy and a girl um, that I still see a lot of these issues present with my son who is 12 today. Today's his birthday. Um, there's still um, a lot of bullying from other boys if you do something that doesn't meet that stereotypical what it is to be a boy mold. Like, for instance, we were at the pool like a couple of weeks ago and he had the opportunity to play with a girl who was interested in playing with him and he was interested in playing with her, but the boys were watching and he's like, he knew if he played with this girl in front of the boys, they would tease him. Um, when he was younger, because he has an older sister, he wanted to do everything his older sister was doing. She, so she was into painting her nails. So he asked her to paint his nails and he went, he was in preschool, actually, not even in elementary school at this age. And he went to preschool and all the boys like picked on him. And as soon as he came home, he was like, mom, take the nail polish off because he was teased so badly. So just my own experiences of having children I see that he has this pressure of presenting a certain way in front of the other boys. If, if we're out of our house, like, and I go to touch him even on his shoulder, he's like, you can't do that. Like if any of the boys see my mom showing me any signs of physical infection, I'm going to be made fun of. So I see this a lot still. Um, in with my with my own children and their experiences and I agree with Abby I think a lot of this probably comes from you know the messages given in their homes and boys are still the games that they're the boys are still into video games the messages through that through social media like it's all reinforcing these ideas of what it means to be a boy versus a girl um, I do think in looking at their experiences um, and their social groups, there is more of a safe space now than when I was growing up to be who you are, to be um, gender non-binary, to be, um, you know, whatever sexual identity you are. But there's still this pressure that if you're a boy, you need to act a certain way and look a certain way and same if you're a girl. So, so I think there is this, it is a safer space for people to children to be themselves and express themselves um, in different ways. When I was growing up and I grew up in a very liberal uh, neighborhood, I grew up in New York city um, near Greenwich village, which is if you're familiar, that's where Stonewall happened. Um, and so um, even me growing up and I'm a child from the seventies, like nobody, we were all, you were a boy or girl. And everybody was straight um, still, even in New York City back then. Um, there is a safer space for people, for children to be themselves and be more um, and explore different um, identities now. If they're questioning to have that safety to be um, to explore a little bit more, to just be who they are. But there's at the same time still this pressure to, if you are a boy, if you are a girl, to look and act a certain way. 
It was kind of mixed bag, I think. Still have a lot of work to do. And while I acknowledge uh, the nuances of gender roles and how they play out in society, I would say that there are definitely cases where the only type of power or control that some folks get is from um, subjugating others to um, oppressive gender roles. We've definitely seen that um, play out across different communities um, in Virginia. So it's, it's very complicated. Um, and it's also, you know, there's so many different kinds of conversations that we still have to have about them. But I'm, st- I'm so glad that we're talking about this because you guys are teaching me a lot. So I really thank you. <laughs> so how do we, and by we, I mean family, friends, community, providers, support survivors and victims from the LGBT plus community? who are experiencing violence? Is there something different in how we support them and in, in, in how we provide for them? Jenny, can go ahead. <laughs> well, I was saying, and I mostly work with people who cause harm, um, which of course in turn helps the people that are being harmed, right? Um, I would say giving them safe space to be vulnerable, to get support. I, I feel for... Um, I mean, occasionally I've had men in same-sex relationships and they're court-ordered to a group and they're expected to do group therapy and get vulnerable about their domestic violence problems in a group full of heterosexual men, many of which come from countries where it's still illegal to be in a same-sex relationship and they're ordered to be there and expected to get vulnerable about their intimate partner relationships. And I know I wouldn't feel comfortable if I were them getting vulnerable um, about my same-sex relationship in that space. So we really need to give them a space where whatever side of the spectrum you're on, whether you're a victim of violence or you're one causing violence, um, you need a safe space to be able to be vulnerable, to get the help you need. Um, so providing that space, which means recognizing when a space is not safe for them, you have to be able to recognize that and say, okay, this needs, this is what needs to happen for that safe, to, that space to become safe for them. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm continuing to speak to prevention, right? And prevention um, with youth, especially. So the Trevor Project regularly does a survey on transgender and non-binary youth mental health. Um, and the results from that survey in the past year showed that having safe family environments, safe community environments, um, feeling like they're safe at school are all things that contribute to better mental health outcomes across the board. So just as a starting point, before we even talking about domestic violence, um, having supportive adults and communities is the biggest thing for mental health. Um, we know right now that we are having these um, conversations politically about the impact of um, schools in particular right now, um, their different policies and having different um, ways of supporting uh, trans kids as something that is is up for debate. And we know that that has an impact on their experiences and has an impact on their mental health. So that's a starting point. Um, we also know that it's important to have conversations about gender and gender roles early on. So like Jen talked about, you know, just because they're not getting it at home doesn't mean it's not out there in the world. So if you are um, a parent or a caretaker of any kind, if you have um, young people in your family, 
um, make sure to talk to them about, you know, their experiences and be open and clear with them that they can be whoever they want to be. Um, and I know that that doesn't sound like it's related to violence, but it actually really is. Because when we um, have that opportunity to prevent violence by talking about gender roles, for folks who are currently experiencing violence or have experienced violence in their past, um, we all have the skills to be supportive of victims and survivors in our lives um, because they're our loved ones. So we can be empathetic. We can listen to the things they need. We can ask the ways that we can support them. We can make them a meal. We can just be a friend, right? Um, there are so many ways that you can support your loved ones and you don't need to have special skills or training or any sort of counseling certification to be a supportive person to others in your life, right? Um, and it's good to know your resources. So Domestic and Sexual Violence Services and Virginia Anti-Violence Project are some of those resources. Um, we also have um, resources for just basic needs. Sometimes people don't realize that a lot of what survivors need are just those basic, do they have a safe place to live and stay? Do they have access to childcare? Do they have access to meeting those basic things? And so if that's something that someone in your life is struggling with, Fairfax County has so many resources. We are so lucky to have opportunities to support healthy families and healthy communities. Um, and we know that violence is not just between two people. Um, it comes from a place of people not having their needs met, whether those are individual needs, whether those are um, needs of the family, and then that stress can really contribute to um, vulnerability. And so being a supportive friend, being a supportive loved one broadly, and then also if you or someone you love is in need of support, um, seeking resources for that practical support, and then also for that emotional and mental health type support. Um, and I don't think those things need to be related to um, anyone's identity. Those are things that can be true for people in any sort of relationship that's uh, not serving them. And if I can just add really quickly, and in regards to centering the needs of survivors and victims, it's um, also really important. This is what I the had to learn on my advocate journey is to not push expect like my own personal expectations or needs on survivors. Um, and that's something that can be really difficult, um, separating yourself from an advocate role um, to the, in an individual role, especially when helping someone. Um, especially with VAVP is that we are here to serve and assist clients. And so we, uh, like what Abby was saying, folks definitely need access to safe housing, to healthcare, to childcare, to, uh, do they have access to transportation and to toiletries and things like that? So it's definitely like having to make sure that we're hearing what survivors and victims need first and foremost. And you don't have to do those things alone. We have a 24-hour hotline in Fairfax County. We have a 24-hour LGBTQ helpline at the state level. Um, and these are some of the things that you can get by speaking with an advocate. So you can be a support to them in a way that we can't. And also, we are able to support in a way that um, you know may have some of those professional skills needed and may have some information about accessing services and resources. So I'm sure that our hotline is going to be somewhere on the page that you're clicked on to get to this. Um, but please call and we are more than happy to support. Um, and we support people of all genders, of all sexualities, and of all identities across the board. Well, don't be shy, Abby. Speak up. Tell us the number. <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't sure if you had it written down, but our hotline is 703-360-7273. I don't have the AVP and the LGBTQ helpline memorized, unfortunately, but I'm sure we'll include it, unless Monica knows it. <laughs> I don't know it off the cuff. No, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I apologize. Okay. Well, ladies, we have wrapped up all of our time. 
that's going to be it for this edition of Unscripted Conversations about Sexual and Domestic Violence. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Jennifer, Abby, and Monica for joining us. If you or someone you know has experienced interpersonal violence, call the Domestic and Sexual Violence 24-Hour Hotline at 703-360-7273 or visit fairfaxcounty.gov and search for Domestic and Sexual Violence. To listen to other county podcasts, visit www.fairfaxcounty.gov slash podcasts. Unscripted Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence is produced by the Fairfax County, Virginia Government. 